Good morning, Orangewood. Great to see all of you here uh, today. I'm excited as we are beginning our new sermon series today called Blessed. And we'll spend the next two months uh, looking at this great section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word butis, meaning supremely blessed. And our hope uh, as a church is to resource you as best we can so you can fully and engage and enter into the Beatitudes uh, with us. Uh, so we have a short um, explainer video on why we chose the series, lock screens. I have one on my phone now uh, for the series and some other book resources if you'd like to read on it at orangewood.org slash blessed, orangewood.org slash blessed. Additionally, uh, we were excited. Uh, we have this notebook. Maybe you hopefully grabbed one when you came in. Um, uh, they'll be in the lobby. And this is a devotional that you can have with you weekly. Uh, there's a section for sermon notes uh, in here. And also a little short devotional related to the beatitude we're studying for the week. So you can engage with that, with some um, what we're focusing on for that week, as well as some reflective questions. A really super easy way to get involved. Uh, with our sermon series outside of Sunday morning. Uh, this book will have physical copies in the lobby, but you can also find a digital version if you'd like that at orangewood.org slash blessed. Friends, here is what I know. Every person is looking to be truly blessed. Every person. You, me, and every person who has ever lived is looking to be truly blessed. How do I know this? Well, uh, if you study the history books, they, they talk about there are four main questions that every civilization, uh, every community, every culture has tried to answer and we are currently trying to answer. And uh, long after we're gone, people will still be trying to answer four questions. And one of those questions is who is well off? Uh, who truly has the good life? Or put another way, who is truly blessed? Maybe you're here and you're kind of saying, ah, you know, Tyler, I don't know about that. It'd be four questions, come on. I mean, but who, who really cares? But let me just stay with me. Uh, there is this study done about this. Do you know what the hardest class to get into at Harvard University, get into, register for? The hardest class to get into at Harvard University right now. It's a class taught by one of my favorite writers. His name's Arthur Brooks. And the class is called Managing Happiness. And what they did is, uh, Wall Street Journal did a story on this. They they talked about all of these graduates from Harvard University who had their MBAs, who, who, who went off to very high successful, high paying jobs uh, that had an apartment that overlooked Central Park. And from the outside, externally, everything in their life appeared that they had the good life. Uh, it appeared that they were well off, but Harvard had done studies to find that though outwardly they looked like everything was together, these graduates said internally, I feel like I'm falling apart and I feel like I struggle to have contentment and happiness 
in my life. The message of the good life that we have been invited to and promised in our culture is that if you just get into the right school, if you just get into the right job, if you just have the right apartment overlooking Central Park that costs you $10,000 a month, true story, then you will be truly blessed. I actually looked up this morning just to verify this. On Zillow right now, uh, you can find uh, an apartment overlooking Central Park for $22,000 a month if you so choose. The students, the students with Harvard at the bottom of their email signature are struggling to answer this question, who is truly blessed? But it's not just happening at Harvard. Uh, their rival, Ivy League rival, Yale University, their most popular class of all time is a class called the Science of Well-Being. It's the most popular class in their 316-year history. On campus, the class is called Psychology and the Good Life. The online version has had over 2.2 million people enroll to answer this question, who is well off? Who has the good life? Who is truly blessed? This is a question we are all trying to answer. Who is truly blessed? And we find, you and I, we are pumped daily with messages and promises of this is the good life. This is who is well off. Uh, we, we get these, these uh, subconscious messages even as we scroll through social media posts of others and we see their lives. Uh, we see it in ads that come along promising you just enter in. This, this is the good life. I saw recently an old Peugeot car ad. You remember you know, Peugeot the car? I saw an old ad that ran in the LA, LA Times and the advertisement simply read this. Read this. Pursue happiness in a car that can catch it. Man, that's good. That's a good ad. Pursue happiness in a car that can catch it. Throughout history, throughout civilizations, we have all desperately tried to answer this question at a core human level. Who is well off? Who is truly blessed? And much like Peugeot, we keep trying to answer that question in different ways. Who is truly blessed? And this morning, I am excited for you. The reason I'm excited for you is you are about to hear the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. You know, some people, you know, you hear they overpromise, underdeliver, but I am actually feeling very, very confident this morning that you will hear the greatest sermon ever preached. Are you ready? Is more the question. Who is truly blessed? Well, with that, would you stand? out of reverence and the authority of God's word as we hear from Jesus 
as he begins the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Before you take a seat, would you pray with me? And so, gracious Father, would you meet us today? Would you remind us of your abiding presence as we've sung about? Oh Lord, take my mere words and through the power of your spirit, meet your church today with exactly where they are, with exactly what they need to hear so that we can be formed into the image of your son to be a church released for the betterment of our world. We do pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Uh, in a culture offering many different answers for who is truly blessed, Jesus would like for you to sit under his teaching and to hear his words to you today of who is blessed. And what you will find is his answers are very countercultural from the answers you will hear in our great city of Orlando. And for many of us today, we will need to actually take on a new lens for how we view Jesus. I actually just got new glasses. Uh, thanks for noticing. Um, but what happens, you, 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 uh, you have this old prescription and you go and you get your eyes checked and they tell you this is what it is and then you get the new glasses, you put them on and then you realize, oh my goodness, I can see. Uh, you, uh, you, you, you didn't realize I'd been putting up with such lack of clarity, such fog for so long. And this morning, Jesus is wanting us to have some fresh lenses for how we view him. Uh, for many of us, uh, we believe that Jesus, all he came to do was to die on the cross for my sins. And that is a glorious truth. Let's not mistake that. But the glasses are just a little off if that's all we see. I believe the right lenses, we can see that Jesus is not only the greatest redeemer to have ever lived, but he is also the smartest person to have ever lived. And Jesus has not only come to save you and redeem you, but he has come as your friend to teach you how to live in his kingdom with God, to teach you how to experience life in this kingdom that we have talked about. Living your life in God's presence, that is what it means to be truly blessed. And the person who receives Jesus' invitation to follow him, his teaching, this person, Jesus is saying, is truly well off. And the way to this blessed life, Jesus says, is through the Beatitudes, the section that we are in. Now, the Beatitudes are giving us a description 
of the totality of a certain kind of life. They are interconnected and they keep pointing back to the certain kind of character of the inner person that reflects the person of Jesus. So what can happen sometimes, and maybe this is you, I'm not saying it is, but maybe, uh, we can sometimes view the Beatitudes kind of like going through the school cafeteria lunch line. Students, you do this uh, almost daily. Some of us, we did it a few years ago. Others of us, we did it a long, long time ago. Um, but we went through that school cafeteria line, right? And, and, and we can almost feel a little bit like, oh yes, oh yes, ooh, that looks, can I have some meekness? Yes, I'll take some meekness. Um, how, how, is the, how is the poor in spirit today? Can I have some? Yes, I'll take, how, can I try the poor in spirit? We, we almost kind of look at it line items in the school cafeteria. Uh, but the Beatitudes are meant to be seen as a whole. They're meant to be seen as a whole, giving us a glimpse of a certain kind of person who is truly experiencing the good life. John Stott put it this way. The Beatitudes set forth the balanced and multifaceted character of Christians. These are not eight separate and distinct groups of disciples, some who are meek while others are merciful. They are rather eight qualities of the same group. And so today we jump in to look at these eight different qualities of the life of who is truly blessed. And we begin with the first Beatitude and it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins his sermon here in the Beatitudes. This is what the good life looks like. And he begins with this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because in many ways, writers have said uh, the poor in spirit is the foundation. It is essential for you to engage with the other two through eight. Uh, if, if there was a foundation to the house that's to be built, poor in spirit is essential to the truly blessed life. But when we say that, you may be asking, okay, well, that's really, uh, sounds, it sounds important, Tyler, um, but what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, the imagery we get from Jesus is uh, coming from the Old Testament, and, and it's coming from this, this picture of, of resources, of, of poverty, those of literal or material need, uh, those feeling marginalized or under-resourced. But gradually over time, to the people of Israel who walked with God, the poor uh, became a model uh, because the poor had no other refuge than God in their life. That's all they had. They, all they could do was pray. And so the poor took on uh, spiritual connotations so that the DNA match of what it means to be poor in spirit is someone who has humble reliance upon God. Uh, we see this actually with King David. King David identifies himself at one point in a psalm. He says, I am a poor man. Now, now David, uh, David was the king of the world, uh, the king, the most powerful man in Israel, way more resource than you and I. Um, but this is what he says here. David says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, David speaking of himself, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Uh, King David calls himself a poor man because he knows it's not what's in your bank account that will save you. 
He knows that the career will not save you. Uh, David knows uh, whatever you've accomplished, whatever stuff you have accumulated in your life, as great as it is, it won't save you. Uh, he, He tells us, only God crying out to God in humble reliance on him as a poor man cried, he said, It's that person who will be saved out of their troubles. We see the same picture in the book of Isaiah. Actually, in the book of Isaiah, this section, uh, many scholars believe this is what Jesus is quoting in the Sermon on the Mount. We read this in Isaiah 66. It says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, God speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, in my translation, it says contrite in spirit, but in the Hebrew, it's this the word nekeh. You want to say that? Nekeh. You don't have to. It's just But this word, uh, you find it many places, uh, speaks to lameness in the Bible. At one place we actually see this is the story of Saul. Um, His son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. And and Mephibosheth that we learned was lame in both feet. It's the same word used here. Same word. This idea that there is a lameness that we all experience. I mean, can you imagine the life for Mephibosheth? I mean, uh, he, he's lame in both feet. Uh, if he's to get anywhere, he has to depend on someone else. If, if he's going to be put in his bed, someone has to do it. If he's going to be put in the bath, somebody has to do it. Utter humiliation. But Jesus says it's those who recognize their spiritual lameness, the spiritual zeros, as Dallas Willard put it. Those are the ones experiencing the good life. Jesus is saying to you, if if you're willing, it is those who realize they have no part in the self-sufficient life and who rely on me. It's those who are flourishing. This is probably why Jesus used infants and children in his stories in the Gospels to talk about the kingdom of God and life with God. He says this in Luke 18. Now they were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, and that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him, rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, uh, them to him and saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Friends, it is the spiritual zeros. It's those who can acknowledge they are spiritually lame, those who are completely dependent on God this morning, and they know it in the depths of their bones. They are the ones who are truly blessed. What would a Presbyterian sermon be without a John Calvin quote? Those people that laughed are Presbyterians, just in case you're wondering. He said this, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. So that is what it means to be poor in spirit, dependent on God. We know it in the depths of our bones. There's a a spiritual lameness uh, to my life. I, I know that I do not have what it takes 
but I know God does. God has the power. God can deliver. God can redeem. God can set what's right. But what does it look like? What does poor in spirit look like in our lives? Okay, that's our next question. What are the characteristics of the poor in spirit? Well, the first is this. There is a growing awareness and gratitude in your life that everything comes from God. There's a growing awareness and gratitude that everything comes from God. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life. I've experienced it in mine. There are seasons that we go through, seasons of suffering and disappointment and failure, maybe sickness. And those seasons, God strips us of our self-sufficiency. We know, we know our life is falling apart. We notice how frail we are without him. And so our prayer life increases. Our spiritual practices increase. As we sang earlier, abide with me, we get a greater sense of the abiding presence of Jesus with us. Plain and simple, we realize in those seasons we are nothing without him. But if you are like me, when we get through the difficult season, um, when, when failure is now a success in your life, Essentially, our need for God grows cold. We will never say this out loud to God, but, but we say it with our lives. God, thank you so much for getting me through that rough patch. Thank you so much, but don't worry. Don't worry. I can take it from here. I've got it. There's a story um, that kind of, we see this in the Bible, but it really is the story of the human condition. Uh, it's the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, but it's the story of the people of Israel. They, they have been literally set free from bondage, the bondage they could not get out of, set free from it. They've been redeemed. They've been delivered. They've been brought out by God, and they have to be offered this warning because we know the human condition of self-sufficiency, don't we? This is what we read in Deuteronomy. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, sounds like a great life, doesn't it? And then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then he ends with this, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. The proud in spirit look at everything in their life as something they have accomplished, they have achieved, they own, they control. The poor in spirit have an awareness that everything of good and beauty in their life comes from God. All the blessings, all the resources, all the health, everything that I have comes from him. When I think of the life in the poor in spirit, I really do think of Proverbs 3, and we read this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Ooh, I need to hear that. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Friends, 
Where this morning are you trusting in your own understanding in your life? Where or what are you trying to control in your life right now? The poor in spirit are asking different questions. They're asking, do I have a growing awareness of my need for God through Jesus? They're also asking, do I have a growing spring of gratitude flowing in my heart for all that God has done? Those are good questions to ask yourself this week at some point. Do I have a growing awareness of my need for God? And do I have a growing spring of gratitude flowing in my heart? I think the gratitude speaks to our awareness of what truly God has done in our lives, how he has saved us from ourselves, how he has redeemed us, how he is working in and through our lives constantly. So that's the first characteristic. The second is this. There is a growing surrender of our wills to God. A growing surrender of our wills to God. The proud in spirit are very clear. They know what they need, but here's what I know and here's what you know or you will know at some point in your life. Life doesn't go as we planned. God will allow something that doesn't look good to us, something that doesn't feel good to us into our life. Here's a question for you this morning. Do you find yourself living in your mind somewhere else than other than where you right, right where you are? Uh, do you find yourself uh, thinking about the past, things that you would change, stewing over regrets and failures? Oh, if I could just go back and say this differently or do this differently. And then others of us, we, we are fixated on our plans for the future, trying to control the future. We, we try to look out for whatever possibly could come my way in the future. All the issues that we might face in life. How in the world am I gonna pay for college? How will I respond when Emmy, our daughter, brings home a boyfriend for the first time. What will I do with his body? <laughs> we can spend our lives, we can spend our lives trying to change the past or plan for the future, but the poor in spirit know that that kind of life is exhausting and defeating. The truly blessed can surrender over their will to God because they know that he is good and he knows what he is doing. God's got the past with the mistakes and regrets that I can't change. And he's got the future and the situations I can't control. I love the way Jacques Philippe put it. He put it this way. 
Being poor in spirit means accepting the fact that we are not masters of our own lives and do not totally control them. We in the West have an obsession with control, planning everything, choosing everything, making all things subject to our wills. But to be poor in spirit means knowing how to abandon oneself, trustingly allowing oneself to be led along the unforeseen pathways of life and saying yes to God. What would that look like for you to say yes to God today? God, I surrender my, my will, yes to you, yes, all throughout this week. So these are characteristics of the poor in spirit, a growing awareness and gratitude that everything comes from God that's in my life and a growing surrender of our wills to God. Jesus says, blessed is the person who is experiencing that kind of good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if this is the well-off life, if this is the foundation for which every other beatitude we will study, the question may be asking, how do I become poor in spirit? Well, first, see what Jesus did. Uh, we see the ultimate example of a life dependent on God uh, in the person of Jesus, that Jesus himself was the purest picture of poor in spirit. Jesus actually tells us about himself and why you, yes, you can receive the invitation to come and follow him. He says this, come to me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Are you heavy laden today? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus defines himself as lowly in heart. Dane Ortland says, we see no other description in the Bible where Jesus tells us about his heart. And he, he tells us that it is lowly. I mean, many other characteristics, I think uh, Jesus is powerful in heart. Jesus is rich in heart. But Jesus says, I'm lowly in heart, and you can come to me. We become poor in spirit by seeing the king of the universe coming low so that we could inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lost his status, lost his approval on the cross so that you and I would never have to wonder what is our status. So you and I would never have to wonder, do we have God's approval this morning? All has been made right by Jesus who was lowly in heart because he is poor in spirit. So first, see what you need. Second, embrace, see what he did. Second, embrace your need. Uh, my freshman year of college started off great. Uh, as I was graduating, um, I was flush with cash in my bank account from those wonderful graduation gifts. You know, people don't know what to give you, so they just give you money. Um, it's a wonderful thing. And so I go off to college with, with, with flush with cash in my bank account. And in that first semester, I am, uh, I, I'm going on a trip every weekend uh, to the mountains. I'm uh, I had a long distance girlfriend at the time, which that was an issue. Um, I, I, I didn't want to eat the school cafeteria food. So I'm eating out every weekend. And this thousand dollar plus account of mine was whittled down to a hundred dollars in three months. And I still had the second semester. And I knew I was in trouble. 
I knew that I had to embrace reality. I knew that I was in need. And I knew that I was going to eat a lot of cafeteria food. Being able to embrace our need, friends, is so important to becoming poor in spirit. Honestly, this is why I believe Alcoholics Anonymous has been so successful for so many years is because the 12 steps begin with the very first step, which is essentially blessed are the poor in spirit. The, the step one says that we would admit we are powerless and our lives has, have become unmanageable. Dallas Willard was a university professor at the University of Southern California where he, he taught philosophy and he had a, a student who, who came to see him one day and this student, because he taught philosophy, uh, was a skeptic of faith, didn't believe in God, but he asked Dallas, who did, well, where is God? Uh, Dallas, can you tell me where God is? And Dallas says, oh, I know exactly where you can find God. Uh, yeah, you just have to go to theendofyourrope.com. That's where you find them, theendofyourrope.com. Have you embraced your need? Finally, enjoy your inheritance. You may be saying, what, what inheritance? Well, we see it actually right here in this verse. It says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You and I are invited continually into an abiding relationship with God in his kingdom right now and forever. Jesus says those who are truly blessed are the poor in spirit and they have received the ultimate inheritance, which is the continual presence of God with you throughout all of your days. Every moment he's there. The truly well off are not those who take home the mega Powerball lottery, as great as that would be, I think I could make it work. Uh, the, the, the truly well-off are, are, are not those who, who the, the things they're dreaming about come to reality in their life, as great as those would be. The greatest thing you and I need is the presence of God no matter where we go, no matter what we face. And what we learn is the poor in spirit who look like nothing in the world's economy are children of royalty in the heaven's economy. The poor, the down and out, the spiritual zeros, those who don't look like they have much, uh, those are the ones who've received the greatest inheritance that's been available to humankind. The continual delight and presence of God. Back in July, uh, we took our family to New Smyrna Beach, and we're just hanging out right, right there by the ocean. Uh, kids are playing in the water. Rachel and I are not having to do anything, which was wonderful. Um, but we're sitting there, and I look over, and there is an adult daughter uh, with Down syndrome, and she is dancing with what appears to be her father. And I'll confess as I watched, it was very rough dancing. Um, they're dancing, uh, she's stepping all over his feet. Um, uh, I think she's trying to lead, but clearly she's supposed to be following. Um, and uh, 
as you were watching, you know, Rachel and I are trying not to watch, you know, give them some privacy, but it's this moment. But I couldn't t- take my eyes away from the father. Because as, as, as it's very messy, the dancing that's happening, this father is gazed on his daughter as if there is no one else on this beach. No one else is there. And as I'm watching it, all I can think about is there is a God who lifts up the lowly. There is a God who meets me. There is a God who meets you. There is a God who takes care of the poor in spirit who would surrender their life to him. Our God who brings us into his presence, who smiles in delight that we are his and we will dance with him for all eternity as his child. You know, in the early church, um, they were trying to work through theologically who is the Trinity? How do, we, how do we define the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That there's three persons in one God. Quite a complex thing to work through. And the definition they came up, the best definition they could come with, up with to define the Trinity is perichoresis. Uh, choresis in the Greek is where we get our word choreography. Dance. Dance. The best image the early church theologians could come up with to describe the Trinity was the ever-flowing, eternal, loving, mutual fellowship dance of God between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that dance is the inheritance available to the poor in spirit who want to join him on the beach and see him smile at you. He wants you to dance with him. He wants you to know his embrace. He wants you to walk with him through life and for you to know that you are never alone and that he is always there because of Jesus. Would you stand as we close? Uh, Friends, this morning, this morning, where are Where are you looking for the well-off life other than Jesus? Um, What have you turned to and has your gaze that you believe is the good life? I invite you today to look to Jesus, that the poor in spirit are the ones who are truly, truly blessed. And it's they, them, who will dance with God forever. Let's pray. And so, Father, by your Spirit and by your grace, as we set off on this journey with Jesus together, allow him to transform us from the inside out. As we seek to follow him, the poor in spirit, the spiritual zeros, that you are our only hope, that you are all we need, and that with you, we can dance. We pray this in your name and everyone said, amen.